Hello and welcome to the 14th episode of the Vintage Matches Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Johnson. On each episode of this podcast, I will pick a sporting event from history and examine it through today's lenses. Just a reminder, this is a part of a series we are working our way up to the 20, Euro 2020 tournament set to take place across Europe this summer. So, the games we are focused on today are the Euro 2012 semifinals and final between Italy and Germany and Italy and Spain, respectively. If Euro 2008 was my entry point, then Euro 2012 was the first Euro that I could fully anticipate after a full qualification and build-up period. By the summer of 2012, I was fully obsessed with football. I subscribed to the Blizzard Quarterly. I paid extra money to get extended sorts packages on cable to be able to watch as many leagues as possible. And I was listening to multiple fo weekly football podcasts, as well as playing the game more and more in my spare time. The English clubs were at the forefront of the club scene in 2012. Chelsea were coming off of a shock Champions League win over Bayern Munich in Munich, having finished just sixth in the Premier League that season. Man City won the Premier League in 2012, with Sergio Aguero's iconic stoppage time winner becoming the greatest moment in Premier League history. Borussia Dortmund, under Jurgen Klopp, had just won their second straight Bundesliga title, while Montpellier shocked everyone and won Ligue 1 over the newly funded PSG. Real Madrid pipped Barcelona to the Liga title during Pep Guardiola's final season in charge, while Juventus won their first of what would become nine Scudettos in a row. Poland and Ukraine were tapped to host Euro 2012, which meant that 51 nations entered the qualifying portion of the competition. Those teams were split into nine groups, with the winners of each group automatically qualifying for the finals. Those group winners were Germany, Russia, Italy, France, Netherlands, Greece, England, Denmark, and Spain. Sweden also automatically qualified as the best second-place team. The other eight group runners-up were drawn into the playoffs and played two-legged ties against each other for the last four spots. The playoffs went as follows. Croatia beat Turkey 3-0 in aggregate. The Republic of Ireland swept aside Estonia 5-1. Czech Republic beat Montenegro 3-0 on aggregate, and Portugal blasted Bosnia and Herzegovina 6-2 on aggregate with a huge second leg victory after a 0-0 in the first leg. So, 16 teams were set to descend upon the eight different cities, four in Poland, four in Ukraine, for a competition that ended up being really, really fun. Let's get to the groups. Group A ended up being quite a dramatic one. Poland and Greece opened up the tournament, with Robert Lewandowski scoring the first goal in Euro 2012. Dimitri Salpangidis equalized for Greece later in the match, and Greece had a chance to win the match with a penalty after both teams were sent, were down to 10 men following red cards earlier in the contest. Teton came on as the Polish keeper and saved the penalty, preserving a 1-1 draw for Poland and keeping the, the host nations, one of the host nations, chances alive. Russia then crushed Czech Republic in their opening match with two goals coming from Alan Zagoev. Roman Pavlyuchenko added a brilliant fourth goal for Russia. In the second match day, Czech Republic beat Greece 2-1 while Poland and Russia drew 1-1 in Warsaw. Jakub Blaszczykowski, another Borussia Dortmund product playing for Poland, scored a ridiculous goal in that match as well. On the final match day, it was the Czech Republic and Greece both getting 1-0 wins, booking their tickets into the last eight. Greece beat Russia 1-0. All Russia had to do was draw in that match, and they would have gone through, um, but could not do it. Greece, shock upset, and the fumes of 2004, their their uh, uh, Euro win in 2004, were evident in this group as it seemed like, hey, look, could they do this again? This is a you know an unfancied side that you know plays pretty defensively, but you know grinds out results, and here they are, you know, barely scraping by in the group, much like 2004. Uh, but obviously, uh, that was not to be, <laughs> as you guys will find out later. Group B was the proverbial group of death in this. A tournament with Germany, Portugal, Denmark, and the Netherlands all drawn together. The opening match saw Denmark surprise the Netherlands with a 1-0 win thanks to a goal from Michael Crondelli. Germany then beat Portugal 1-0 with a goal from Mario Gomez. Denmark and Portugal played a wonderful match in Lviv 
with Portugal winning winning 3-2. Uh, two goals coming from Nicholas Bentner, uh, much maligned Nicholas Bentner for Denmark in that match. Uh, Pepe, uh, Helder Postiga, and Varela got the goals for Portugal. Varela with the late winner in the 87th minute. That set up a really crunch match between Germany and the Netherlands in uh, Kharkiv. Mario Gomez opened the scoring in the 24th minute and then scored a really nice second goal in the 30th minute to make it 2-0 to Germany. Robin Van Persie added one for the Netherlands, but it was too little too late. Portugal and the Netherlands played in Kharkiv in the third match day. Cristiano Ronaldo got a brace in that match to uh, lead a come-from-behind victory. Rafael van der Vaart had scored the first goal for the Netherlands. But Portugal with the come-from-behind victory, and they booked their place in the quarterfinals on six points as Germany beat Denmark in the other match, simultaneously played in Lviv with uh, Lucas Podolski and Lars Bender on the score sheet for the Germans. So that meant that Germany would go through on nine points, Portugal on six, Denmark three, and the Netherlands with three straight losses. A uh, team that had just made the World Cup final in 2010, they go out with zero points in this uh, really, really disappointing effort from them. Group C saw Spain and Italy open with a 1-1 draw after goals from Antonio Di Natale and Cesc Fabregas shared the points for two of the uh, more favorite sides in this competition. Obviously, remember Spain is coming off of both the World Cup win in 2010 and the European Championships win in 2008, which we talked about on the last episode. Croatia played the Republic of Ireland. Uh, the Republic of Ireland were playing their first major national tournament in um, 18 years. They had last played in the 1994 World Cup and their first Euro since 19 1988. Uh, but Croatia crushed them in the first match with Mario Mandzukic Mario netting twice and Nikita Jelovic adding the other one for Croatia. Sean St. Ledger did score one for the Republic of Ireland. Italy and Croatia drew 1-1 in Poznan with Andrea Perlo uh, with a brilliant free kick, uh, opening the scoring for Italy, and then Mario Mandzukic uh, getting the draw for Croatia. And then Spain crushed Republic of Ireland in Gdansk with two goals coming from Torres, one from David Silva, and one from Cesc Fabregas. Croatia and Spain were facing off as a top-of-the-table clash in Gdansk. And Jesus Navas got the late winner there for Spain to win the group and move through in top spot, while Italy beat Recek, uh, while Italy beat the Republic of Ireland with goals from Antonio Cassano and Mario Balotelli, which saw Italy go through in second place on five points. Group D saw England and France advance over the Ukraine and Sweden, but this group was not without some drama. France and England drew in the first match. Julian Lescott opened the scoring with a header, and Samir Nazri added a brilliant long-range shot to uh, in the first half to make it 1-1 at halftime, which is what the final score would be the Ukraine beat Sweden 2-1 with the goals coming in about a 10-minute stretch. Zlatan Ibrahimovic opened the scoring for Sweden, and it looked like they were going to be on their way to an opening win. But the Ukrainian hero, the probably the best player in the history of the country, uh, he's 35 years old, Andrei Shevchenko, wearing the captain's armband for Ukraine, scored twice in the 55th and 62nd minutes to get a dramatic win for Ukraine in a really, really inspiring moment, and uh, one that I might talk about in a little more depth later in this podcast. Uh, that meant that France would play Ukraine in a really, really big game in the second uh, match day, and they beat Ukraine uh, with two goals coming from uh, Jeremy Meneth and Johan Kabai. That match was played in Donetsk. And then one of the best uh, matches of the tournament, Sweden-England playing in Kiev. Uh, Andy Carroll opened the scoring with a really, really nice goal for England. And then uh, Glenn Johnson scored an own goal for Sweden to level the match. And then Olaf Melberg gave Sweden the lead in the 59th minute. So 2-1 Sweden with just 30 minutes to play. Theo Walcott came on and scored a long-range effort for England to make it 2-2, and then Danny Welbeck with a really, really nice flick on after some great work by Theo Walcott down the right wing uh, to give England the 3-2 the, uh, lead and eventual win. 
England then beat Ukraine with one goal coming from Wayne Rooney, who had been suspended for the first two matches, but came back and scored the lone goal in the match against Ukraine. There was a really controversial moment in that uh, Ukraine-England match where a ball seemingly crossed the line, but there's obviously not goal line technology in this tournament. And uh, John Terry was the one who kind of cleared it off the line. And replays show that it probably did cross the line. It would have been it would have made it 1-1 uh, to Ukraine. And Ukraine needed a win in that match to advance over England. Uh, but they did not get that that. Uh, refereeing decision and then obviously didn't get the result as they end up losing one nil so i think one one they would have both gone through it would have been it would have been france that would have been out of luck there but um and actually ukraine based on how the rest of the results went ukraine would have needed a little bit more help too they probably would have needed to win that match to actually advance uh but they didn't and that's why we have going technology i i'm you know not a huge proponent of var but going technology is very very simple it's an instant you know reaction we know exactly we just look at the referee's watch and we know exactly it doesn't affect the the, the flow of the play at all so uh, it's one that like definitely should have been changed. And England has had um, both some luck in 1966 with uh, no going technology, some bad luck in 2010 with no going technology against Germany, and then some luck here against Ukraine. So I guess, you know, in the end, they came out on top on that in that debate. Uh, Sweden beat France in the final match of that uh, group with Zlatan Ibrahimovic and Henrik Larsson. I'm sorry, Seb Larsson <laughs> scoring. I was so used to saying Henrik Larsson from earlier Euros, but uh, Seb Larsson getting the goal in stoppage time to seal the win for the Swedes. Now, Sweden, that was their only points of the group, so they were kind of playing for nothing there. But because Ukraine lost to England, um, France did advance in second place into the quarterfinals. So let's get to the quarterfinals. The first one was played in Warsaw between Portugal and the Czech Republic, and it was Cristiano Ronaldo with a 79th-minute winner to see Portugal into the semis. Germany and Greece played in one of the higher-scoring matches, actually the highest-scoring match of the tournament, uh, as they beat Greece 4-2 to with goals coming from Philip Lahm, Sami Kadira, Miroslav Klose, and Marco Reus. Spain played France in Donetsk, and Javi Alonso got both goals. The second one a penalty in stoppage time to seal the win for Spain and book their place in the semis. And then England and Italy played 120 minutes of scoreless football, but it was Italy who would go through on penalties. After Mario Balotelli, Andrea Pirlo with a really, really cheeky um, little dinked panenka uh, past Joe Hart. Antonio Notorino and Alessandro Diamanti, the scores for Italy in that. A uh, quick word on that penalty shootout, too. Joe Hart was acting like a complete moron. I remember where I was watching this match. I um, was living with this guy who I coached with at the time. We were running a summer league together, and I didn't really have a place to stay in the summer, but I knew I wanted to work this summer league. because was you know, pretty good extra money for a basketball coach who was making very little money at the time. So um, I was living with him, and he wasn't a big soccer guy. Uh, so we'd watch kind of the NBA playoffs at night, and then I was like, hey, man, this tournament's starting. I'm going to have I'm gonna have this on during the afternoon if you don't mind. And he said, no, it's cool. So he would watch some of it with me, and he was, you know, didn't really know what he was talking about, but he really enjoyed penalty shootouts because he's like, oh, I love the drama of that. Like, it's really, like, kind of a fun thing. So it was fun to watch that through kind of a neutral's eyes and kind of a guy who's not as into the game as I am. Uh, he really enjoyed the penalty shootout. And then Joe Hart was acting just crazy, you know, making these weird faces at the Italian shooters. He was like just laughing kind of, it, it just, it seemed like he was trying to take the piss, but it didn't really work. And in the end it was Andrea Pirlo who sat him down with that little uh, dinked chip. Uh, Ashley Young and uh, Ashley Cole, the two Ashleys for England were the two that missed penalties uh, for the English. And yeah, it was more penalty heartbreak for England as they lost the Euro 2012 quarterfinal to Italy. So that set up our, our semifinals. It was Portugal and Spain, the Iberian rivalry. Um, and that one also finished nil nil and went to penalties with Spain prevailing four to two. And this is also, this one also has some drama because it was Bruno Alves who took the fourth penalty for Portugal and he missed Cristiano Ronaldo was set to be the fifth penalty taker, but because, um, John Moutinho had missed earlier and the Spain, the Spanish takers, Iniesta, Pique and Ramos had all scored theirs. Ramos also scoring with the Panenka. It meant that if Fabregas scored his, then Ronaldo wouldn't take the penalty. Spain would just advance four two on penalties. So, Fabregas scores it in off the post 
and Ronaldo doesn't even take one. So uh, the camera cuts to him and he's just shaking his head like, oh, and I think there's a lot of things that came out at the time is like he really wanted to be the fifth taker in case that was the one kind of for the win, like for the, you know, for the drama of it. But you usually like to put your, your best penalty takers first and fourth because those are the, kind of the key ones and the ones that can kind of swing. I mean, you pretty much always get to your fourth taker unless there's just disaster on the other side or on your side. So really kind of dumb that he was not at least the fourth taker, but he was slated fifth. He didn't get to take one and uh, shame for Ronaldo, but Spain go through to the final. So that leads us to the other semifinal, which is where we're going to take a little break here. And I'm going to welcome on my first guest ever on this podcast. And it is my brother. Um, so we'll kind of introduce him in this next little segment here. But we're going to be talking about the Germany and Italy semifinal. And you'll find out why we're talking about this semifinal specifically with him, because he has, he has a unique place for where he watched it. So uh, come back after the break and we will hear from uh, my brother, Austin. And we will be talking about the Germany, Italy, Euro 2012 semifinal. Okay, so on to the second semifinal here. And that is the match between Germany and Italy. Uh, who would join Spain in the final. And I'm going to have a guest for the first time here, so I'm going to welcome him. This is Austin Johnson, my brother. So I'll let you kind of uh, introduce yourself, I guess, and then kind of talk about where you were during this match and why you're on this podcast. Yeah, uh, awesome, awesome time. I think 2012 is around, for me, I was 17. So I was really, you know, kind of taking the sport full on. Like uh, Chelsea had just won the Champions League. That's my That's the club team that I have kind of fallen for. Of course, we just won it again, but uh, that was a huge experience that uh, them being Bayern in the final. Uh, and then I went to Romania for like a 10 day trip and then went to Budapest for a day and then went to Rome for like four or five days during these games. Right. And Italy, of course, had that kind of hot streak where they're kind of you could even say upsetting teams. And of course, in this semifinal, definitely upsetting Germany. Uh and it was in this huge plaza. I don't know the proper name, how to, how to properly say it, but it, 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 it was a spectacle, to say the least, of watching that semifinal, this one we're going to talk about, this game, with, I'd say, 2,000 to 3,000 Italians in, in the plaza just kind of hanging out, blasting flares and going crazy for Bellatelli. <laughs> So essentially, set the scene. It's basically like one of those watch parties where they have like a big screen. Yeah, it was. And you guys are all just kind of gathered. It around. was one yeah. giant projector. Uh, I'll look up the actual plaza and try to say it. But it's, it's, it's you know nighttime, right? Yeah. So it was kind of like it was it was kind of like a party. Lots of drinking. A lot of people just kind of hanging out with stuff. And, and for real, you know, flares. I had not been to a, a sporting event or a watch party where people had flares just on hand. And that was really cool for me where you're kind of getting obsessed with the culture of it. And that stuff's important. You know, that, that stuff that's otherworldly to you as an American fan watching games. Cause yeah, going to a lot of like NBA games or NFL games or MLB games, that just doesn't happen at the games, let alone for a watch party. Yeah. It's very, yeah. very different. Yeah. It just shows the level of passion, obviously. So at this point you had not been to a match in Europe. So a year no. later, a year later, you, me, and this is awesome. This is my brother, by the way, for anybody who uh, has not uh, figured that out by now, uh, we we gone on a trip to a bunch of different cities in Europe the following summer, so the summer of 2013, and we got to go to some games in different countries and stuff like that. So neither one of us has ever been to a match in Europe. I'm obviously not on this trip, so I was not in Rome as as you were watching no. us, but you were. But the match was taking place in Warsaw, which is yes. what we're, we've talked about already. You know, leading up to this part of the podcast, like you know, kind of going through the other matches. This is obviously the joint host tournament between Ukraine and Poland, and this one was in Warsaw, at a really cool, crazy looking stadium. Very cool. Uh, the national, the kind of like national a kind of like a boat, like yes. a pirate ship on the outside, in the middle of nowhere. It looks yeah. like yeah, just outside of Warsaw, but. Uh, but yeah, so that's what the match was. So Italy, like you said, it's like they're actually kind of surprised to be there. Yeah. They had beat England in the quarterfinal on yes. penalties, which was, I don't know if it was an upset, but I think that was kind of a toss-up. It could go either way. And they outplayed England in that quarterfinal. 
But this was not a, a classic Italian team. I mean, this is far from the team that won the World Cup in 2006. Yes. And a lot of those guys in that generation were gone. You still have a few of them. You still have the Pirlos and the Buffons and some of those guys. But uh, that was a very different team from 06 and, and one that was, I mean, they had players playing for them that just like, you know, weren't even that great for their club sides at the time. So uh, this is, again, not a vintage Italy team. But yeah, but so essentially, you know, you're at this watch party, but you can kind of feel the intensity more so than like, you know, here in San Antonio watching a Spurs game at a bar or something like that. Correct, it's like correct. a very different vibe, yeah. Yeah, and I remember thinking, because uh, the, the only people that I knew that were with me were, was our, our dad and then a family. There was a whole other family. Shout out to the Sediels. Their entire family was there too. So I the whole time I was thinking, God, Adam would just eat this up because it's, it's unique. It's not, we're not, not at a game, but very much feels like this kind of home field atmosphere just in this plaza and it's called the piazza di spagna see i think that's how that that's spain that's how they say spain yeah so like yeah. the spanish plaza in yeah. rome so it's close to the trevi fountain if Correct. anybody's ever been there it's like not that far from there I think yeah it's, and you look this is under a top 10 most beautiful squares in rome okay yeah and it was it was just a big space it was just a big <laughs> open space. In a city that has 10 squares yeah. so even rank you know <laughs> yeah, beautiful squares yeah. yeah rome is awesome i, I obviously did kind of like the major stuff but that city is so much fun to just kind of soak up. Uh, there are cities you can check out the tourist stuff and they have that, but they also have kind of the people watching, observing part, part of like traveling. And for sure, this kind of fit into that. Uh, I, I remember vividly that entire night, how I just like didn't really want to go to sleep. I was like, I kind of want to be on the streets, be on the streets of Rome with all these people. But the game itself, uh, there's a reason they went nuts is because Bellatelli. Yeah, just, yeah has two wonderful moments. It's quite possibly the best match of his career. And I think, I think, uh, yeah, I mean, obviously we've, we've probably buried the lead here, but Italy does win. And so obviously your vibe at that place is a little more euphoric than if it yes. was lost to Germany. So, you know, you're, you're getting to experience both that really unique atmosphere and then a really unique atmosphere where they win and book a place in a major final where they probably had no business being in, you know? So I think that kind of like doubly had this, like, I'm sure just kind of euphoric feel to it, just kind of crazy. Like, man, look at us. We're here. This is, this is nuts. Exactly. And they don't do so hot in the final, which, you know, we'll get to <laughs> later in this episode, but. Which um, I, I actually didn't get to watch the final live because I was flying back. Oh man, that hurts. That hurts. <laughs> I, I, I remember exactly where I was when I watched that, but, um, but yeah, so I had been to Rome. I've, I've been to Rome once. I, it was on a school trip. I went on like a, when I was in high school, mm-hmm. 2008, we went on this like school trip that, you know, educational thing. And we go to, went to Rome, um, Paris, and then London. And we start in Rome. So this is the first time I've ever been to Europe. And it's, you know, we fly into Rome. I fly from Atlanta to Rome. And I was like, this is crazy. This is a totally, you know, unique experience. The first thing that struck me, obviously, is the beauty of some of the architecture and stuff like that. Yes. But the amount of cigarette butts yeah, on, yeah. along the sidewalk, <laughs> I was just like, this is insane. Like, I, I was like, never seen anything like this. And, you know, in freaking Dallas or, you know, wherever I've been <laughs> yeah, to at that point. cities here. Yeah. yeah. So it's like, that was just so unique. And then, yeah, it's it, the, the history of it. And the, uh, I mean, at one point it ruled the world. You know, it was like, it's yeah. just a crazy place. There's a reason it's called the Eternal City. And all roads lead to Rome and all that stuff. It's like, it definitely has that, like, you, you're there and you're like, oh, this feels like, you know, you walk past the Colosseum. It's like, there it is. It's right there. It's like the Coliseum, this world famous very like, cool. yeah, building is is right there. So, yeah, no, I, it's a very fun city. But, yeah, let's get to the match itself. Um, I'll read out the lineups really quick because yes. um, it's oh, not, again, not a classic Italian lineup. I love some of the names on these but, yeah, teams. so here's the Italy lineup. Uh, Gianluigi Buffon in goal. Federico Balzaretti at right back, Andrea Barzagli and Leonardo Bonucci at, as the uh, center backs. That's that Juve pair. Mm-hmm. Uh, Giorgio Chiellini playing left back, another Juve player. Um, Andrea Pirlo, Claudio Marchisio, and Ricardo Montalivo in the midfield. And then the front, kind of three. Daniele De Rossi was playing kind of wide on the left. And then Balotelli and Antonio Cassano were the forwards up front. 
uh, for Germany. It was Manuel Neuer in goal, Jerome Boateng playing right back, Mats Hummels and Holger Badstuber were the center backs, Philip Lahm playing left back and was the captain. Hmm. Midfield was Bastian Schweinsteiger, Sammy Kadira, and Tony Cruz. Attacking midfielder was Mesut Ozil, and the left winger was Lucas Podolski, center forward Mario Gomez. Um, yeah. Yeah, and then obviously there's some firepower off the bench, which we'll get to here in a little bit. But yeah, Yogi Lowe was the manager for Germany at the time, and uh, Cesare Prandelli was the manager for Italy. Uh, so yeah, it, it, when you just kind of read out the teams, you look at them, that German team is quite a bit stronger than the Italy team. Oh, 100%. Uh, not, not just... Not, not just the, like you said, Italy has some older players, but like for the next few years to come, right? Obviously, Germany does some damage uh, the next the next turn. Yeah, maybe maybe a good way to, to look at it is look at the two World Cups that are that sandwich yes. this tournament. So Germany gets third in 2010, mm-hmm. and then wins in 2014. Italy misses; they don't even get out of the group stage in 10 or 14. Yeah, so I think that's like a good way to look at it for like, sure. That's yeah. the difference in these two. Ger- Germany's in the middle of a. A special era yeah. and Italy is just kind of in, in a strange one and they they happen to make a run here um but some of my some of my favorite favorite names especially on the Germany team uh, is is like Tony Cruz playing like left wing yeah essentially yeah. And, and and now obviously he's just kind of like the the essential holding midfielder for with Luka Modric for like Real Madrid it's just so weird to look back just just a decade ago these guys just kind of move around and, and play totally different positions Jerome Boateng is rocking a weird haircut. Uh, <laughs> these guys, uh, uh, it's funny how much the culture has changed in that regard. Uh, just just ten years later, nine, yeah, nine years later, nine, yeah, yeah. So the Italy team. I mean, I'm looking at this, and the only guys that will be in the Italy squad for Euro 2020 will be Bonucci, Chiellini. That's it. Yeah, that's yeah, it. Yeah. And then for Germany, it'll be they brought back obviously Neuer and goal, uh, and then they brought back Hummels recently he hadn't been with the, with the team for a while and then Cruz yeah and that's it yeah, yeah. everybody else will be retired or... yeah or, or just yeah it's just retired like flat out from the game com- completely or just aren't with a national team anymore so yeah I mean Mario Gomez Lucas Podolski Semi Kadira, Bastian Schweinsteiger Philip Lahm like it, yeah they're so close yeah they're all gone, gone. Yeah. yeah so yeah it's it, it is you know it's only nine years ago but it's, it feels like kind of a very different very different era so Italy wins the match so how did that happen so obviously Mario Balotelli scores twice in the first half the second mm. one Kind of comes from a long ball where he takes this really brilliant touch and then controls it and then powers his ball past and then Manuel Neuer rips his shirt off, does the flex, and it's like this iconic kind of moment. Statue. Um, and, and let's talk about Mario Balotelli for a second. So he's just he's playing for Man City at the time. Yes. He just won the title. It's his assist for Sergio Aguero's goal against QPR. It's his only assist for Man City, which I love that stat. Crazy. Uh, this is the assist for the Aguero goal. Um, and he's coming off a really good season. So this is not like a the Mario Balotelli that we know now that's kind of like had these like really you know big troubles. I mean, obviously he'd had some issues in his career, but He's coming off of a really good season. So this is not this is a guy that like should be starting for a major team at an international tournament. Yeah. But he had kind of been jerked around a little bit in this tournament. He started the first two matches, didn't mm-hmm. start the third one. He was pretty angry about that. Um and you know, obviously this is a guy that's a little bit difficult to handle behind the scenes. Yes. He's dealt with all kinds of racist stuff being a black Italian. Yeah. Um, and for that, you know, I've you know the utmost empathy for. But this is this is a guy who sometimes makes a rod for his own back with some of the like I mean that crazy fireworks thing that he got in trouble for like in his apartment in Manchester. Yeah, and, what the... you know he scores against Man- Manchester United in that one match in the eleven twelve season and you know pulls off the shirt why always me and all that stuff and you know he just had his foibles he had that ridiculous do you remember that LA Galaxy 
friendly where he does that absurd like back heel like for no reason when he could have just like tapped him oh all in. yeah, yeah. i forgot like, about that yeah, it's yeah. Like, so he's had Jeez. some some issues but it's like demarcus cousins yeah. but like i said this match showed <laughs> off that's a good yeah that's a good yeah cross cross sport example but <laughs> yeah. uh but he's had he has some some times where he's like unplayable and in this match alone this first half i mean germany just can't deal with him i mean he's just his his combination of kind of speed power his touch, his kind of smarts, the kind of when to make runs like that. It was all on display. And I thought he played great in this first half. Yeah. And, and the, yeah, the, the screamer, the second one <laughs> is one of the cooler goals that I can think of in, in a international tournament. And that first one, uh, you know, this is, this is, this is Manu newer, you know, he brilliantly sneaks, sneaks it past him with the header. I love that first goal. It's kind of like uh, for me, especially when I was, when I was watching it live in that, in that plaza was, that goal to them, to these fans, was like, holy shit, we're in this sort of thing. It wasn't just a one-nil lead. It was like, oh my god, we like we really might be going to the final if we're going to be playing this way. And it doesn't stop. Uh, but Germany, uh, you know, after you and I kind of watched some of this game, uh, have some early chances. Definitely, and definitely. Philip Lom especially has one where he's in, in a run of play where really should have finished, in my opinion, and made this game tighter. Uh, but. But that that second that second one it just uh, just buried buried them and then after that it just it was kind of obvious what was going to happen. You feel like Germany was going to get a goal late, which is what what does happen. But it was kind of always in the bag after that after he took the jersey off. Yeah, so it's two 0 at halftime. So at, at halftime, Germany brings on Miroslav Klose mm-hmm. and Marco Royce for Podolski and Gomez, who had been pretty ineffective in the first. Which half. was which was silly. Uh, both Podolski and Gomez didn't play the game before. Yeah, yeah, and where they'd they won four two. Yeah, yeah, and this they they just. Yeah, like you said, looks looks slow to the to the. Yeah, you could tell he's like kind of wanting to go with the old guard there. You yeah, know, like, oh, yeah. Let's you know, let's and Italy might you know let us like Italy might sit back a little bit so these guys will kind of have some room in the box to operate. Right. But they didn't really do that, you know. I mean, no. Italy actually did a good job of kind of you know pressing the issue. Marquisio is is everywhere. Yeah, yeah. yeah so it, I, I think yeah that was a mistake to play both of them. You know, I I get the Podolski thing because you can play him way out on the left and kind of mm-hmm. have like more of a central forward, but uh, maybe you should have gone with closer from the start. And then they bring on Thomas Muller. For Jerome Boateng, that's like really throwing everything forward. And it's like that's our all-out attack moment, right? Where you pull off a right back and put on another striker. So, yeah. so they're playing with, you know, three forwards and a couple of attacking midfielders at that point. And in uh, and, and Ozil. And they just can't get a goal. I mean, if, until the very end, they get a penalty for a handball, which even that was like a little bit weak. It was, it was, a little it bit was soft weak, and yeah. I think, but I think in the VAR era, it probably would have been given as well. Yeah. Um, Ozil, <laughs> Ozil puts away the penalty. It's in the 92nd minute. It's just too little too late. And, yeah. And Italy holds on and wins 2-1 to book their place in the final against Spain. Um, but yeah, I, I think it's just like a fun match you're going to go back and look at because it's, like, it's such a surprise. But there's a bit of a rock, paper, scissors situation between Spain, Italy, and Germany mm. where Spain beats Germany a couple times in this run, that 08 to kind of 12 run, yeah. the 08 final and the 2010 World Cup semifinal. And then uh, Spain beats Italy, but Italy beats Germany in both the 06 World Cup final or semifinal wow. and then in this semifinal. So it's like this weird kind of rock, paper, scissors situation uh. with those three. And I've, I've listened to Rafa Honigstein, the uh, German um, – author and journalist talk about how like Italy is the one country that really scares Germans when they go against them in a major tournament, because they've had multiple times where they've been knocked out by them, like as opposed to like England, you know, where like they mm. seem to kind of always get the better of England where Italy kind of seems to have Germany's number for whatever reason. It's just like this weird kind of historical which blip. Is, yeah. Which is, which is obviously with, uh, w- with international play, it's, it's like a superstition because it, it, like to have their number, it's like, squads change constantly so dramatically yes so yeah. so it really is like a mental thing yeah oh those italians yes like you're you're really yes. thinking that as a german like shit like they got and, us again yeah. yes yeah. And, and it's kind of like a, if you know you know type thing yeah like, 
if you're if you're really an Italian football fan, or sorry, a German football fan, you're just kind of like, uh oh, like in, in the big tournaments, we we will have an issue with them. That that is a bit of a, like a love triangle though. Those, yeah, those three. <laughs> yeah, so I yeah, it's weird. It's weird how that happens. But I yeah, and I, and I, I don't like when people do the whole like, oh well, like they, you know, this club hasn't beaten this club since 1970. It's like okay, the guys who are playing right now, like, don't give a shit about yeah. that. But yeah. I think in that in this situation specifically, it's like this, this was only six years earlier. Yeah, yeah, where they lost. It's like I mean, there's there's quite a few players who played in both of those matches. You know, yes, like the that's 06, true. the 06 German team against the 06 Italian team. And there's at least like you know four or five members of each squad that like can have real like memories of like starting or playing heavy roles in that match. Um, Podolski probably should have scored in that one, but Buffon saved brilliantly in the 06 semifinal. That's an awesome game. That's one we will definitely be doing at some point. The, nice. Yeah, semifinal of the uh, Germany and Italy one. But yeah, I mean, this is just a fun match. I, I think one that we wanted to kind of take a little bit of time, and obviously you had, had a pretty cool experience with it. Um, I've never been to a Euro match. I've neither, neither of you, obviously, but my plan was to go to the one last mm, year. Yeah. I had tickets to it to a couple of matches, but due to the pandemic, had to sell my ticket back and... Yeah, would not be attending now, but uh, sucks. Twenty twenty four. It's in Germany. That's my plan. As I want to get to a couple of matches in Germany. But yeah, any other thoughts on this match before we kind of sign off? And then I'll, I'll talk about the final. So Austin just joining me for this segment, but uh, but I want to kind of give him the last word before we sign off here. Yeah, I I I, I like this tournament a lot, and I'm really glad you're kind of highlighting, you know, a lot of a lot of different a lot of different matches. I love uh the 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 Spain Portugal game that goes to pens. So good. Uh, in, in Rome, I went to a shop. I can't remember what what it was called. It just kind of sold jerseys, and I was I was very I was in a weird weird place. Now I just buy Chelsea jerseys right there. I only have like twelve, and they're all Chelsea. Uh, well, I have a Dimitri Payet France, but yeah. I don't have I don't have any club jerseys other than Chelsea. Right. You also now. have that Eto that crazy. No, I don't. Okay, I don't. Uh, I have an I actually have an Italy long sleeve. They're just plain with no name on the back that I've had for a while. Uh, but yeah, I don't I don't buy. Club jerseys of other guys, uh, of other teams. And at this time, I was 17, though. It was a different time. I was trying, kind of like, do I want to root for teams outside of the Premier League? Do I care about that? Do I care about repping them? And I, I actually bought a uh, Kevin Prince Boateng, AC Milan, partly because it had the collar. You know, it was like when Zlatan was there. Yeah, so yep. they had really cool kits at that time. I bought that. Uh, I bought you the Cesc Fabregas, number 10, because he, he hits the pen. In the Portugal match, yeah, exactly. Yep. And then Ronaldo doesn't get to shoot. So good. Uh, I love love guys like Cesc, who I I would prefer yep. a guy like Cesc over Ronaldo any day. A guy who like moves the ball and keeps things going. So I love when a guy like that kind of prevails. Yeah, <laughs> kind of gets the last <laughs> laugh. And then I got uh, my friend uh, Arnold uh, Bastian Feinsteiger Bayern jersey, real pretty, like the crimson one with just the gold, you know, gold writing, uh, and. I'll, I'll, I'll never forget those little things that are just kind of key to my fandom for the sport, uh, whether it's buying the KPB jersey or watching this match, the semifinal match with a bunch of Italians that I couldn't really talk to, but I was just kind of watching. Uh, the, all, all those things I remember, whether they're big or small. Well, okay. Well, then let me ask you. So I, I talked about this on the last episode. Uh, my kind of entry point was it was year 2008 that I was, I was covering. And so I talked about how that was a major entry point for me so like, what exactly was your, like, I kind of talked about how I went from, you know, I watched a couple games at World Cup 2006 and I was like, oh, this is interesting. Yeah. I watched Euro 2008 and I was like, oh, this is cool. I started playing FIFA and then I started playing the club game that next season. So what was kind of your like path there? I mean, obviously we're brothers and so like we're, some of this experience is, is the same, you know, like yeah. we're kind of experiencing it at the same time, yeah. but you're younger than me. So like you were experiencing this even earlier. So like, what was like the, the point where you're like, That's oh, true. okay, this is actually like, I actually love this stuff. It's not just like, oh, this is a nice little other thing I get to follow up. It, like, it all, it all has to do with Chelsea. Like I, International play gets hurt a lot because I have never liked how the U.S. runs things at, like at all. 
And then recently when they had these decisions about who's going to run stuff, I just thought things were handled very poorly. Uh, some of the manager decisions we've had over the past few years since I've been watching. So, so with that comes like, oh, I don't really want to root for the U.S. team sometimes. You know, it's kind of hard to root for them, especially when they missed huge tournaments. Yeah. Uh, but club play, I think that 2009 Champions League semifinal final, like the combination of those two, because uh, Chelsea, of course, play uh, Barcelona and lose in the semifinal. Uh, Michael Essien scores, and then Andres Iniesta has that awesome goal right in front of the, right in front of the away fans during that tiny section at the bridge, and that was like intoxicating. And then seeing Messi like take off the boot, I was just I was just like f- taken away by club play that I was like, this is happening. This is simultaneously the Champions League and FA Cup and, and yeah, Premier yeah. League and La Liga and Bundesliga. That's what just kind of floored me was all of this is happening at once, and I can kind of pick and choose what I want to watch and which league I can fall in love with and the champions league. Like what yeah. the fuck is this? There's nothing like that here. You know, the NBA is the NBA. The NFL is the NFL and the MLB is the MLB. The, the creativity and the imagination within like following a, a football club. And when you have the ability to choose, cause you're not from there and I can choose a bigger club that's in, in these matches like Chelsea. I, I it's like my favorite fan experience in, of my life is, is club soccer. For yeah. Sure. And I think both of us, it was the 0809 club season. That was like, yeah, okay, oh, I'm, I'm into this. Yeah. This is, this is now like, and what I'm a really cool era this. for the, for, for the yes. premier league, you know, Fernando Torres and Steven Gerrard, Frank Lampard, Didier Drogba, John Terry, like all these guys. Ferguson's United. You yeah, know, yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's, it's the Ronaldo team transitioning into the Rooney team, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, it's definitely like a really fun time. And like, and they were going deep in tournaments every year. You know what I mean? Like at that point, like the English teams, they're doing that again now, but yeah. there was a time where they weren't they were going deep in the Champions League every single year as well, too, the English clubs. And so, yes. you know, that was kind of like the base, right? Because we speak English. Like, I was talking about that on another one of these episodes. It's like, you know, how I follow the sport and the way it's covered is, like, I speak English. And so, like, naturally, my bend is going to be towards, like, English-speaking media. So, mm-hmm. like, when I've covered these these tournaments, Euro 96 is the most kind of literature about it because it's like, yeah. it was hosted in England and England went far. So, there's a lot of stuff yeah. about Euro 1996, <laughs> even though it's not that great of a tournament, you know, like, yeah. as opposed to some of the other ones. Where it's like, it's like, well, naturally, I'm going to have more to say and more to read and more to talk about with that one than I am other ones because of just the nature of it. You know, it's like, that's just how it is. If I spoke Spanish, you know, mm. like one that might where Spain goes deep is going to have more to talk about and say. But these ones have been more fun because I, I said this during year 2008 one, you know, all the tournaments leading up to it, like Euro 1960, Euro 1980, like all those ones, it's like, I wasn't alive. So I'm like researching these and like yeah. talking about them from like, hey, here's what I learned about this tournament. Whereas 8, 12 and 16 now are going to be here's what i remember from when this tournament was on exactly which is a different experience and so i think i've been glad to be able to do that on this one and obviously i've got one more to go here 2016 before the real tournament starts but um that's been fun to do and so i want to do it kind of with somebody kind of reminisce but any other thoughts on like the tournament in general kind of like before sign off here no 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 i don't i i i I love that spain team yes Yeah, yeah. Sure. So, yeah. After this little segment here, I'm gonna kind of go through the final and talk about that Spain team and just the, the incredible accomplishment. Mm-hmm. I almost think it doesn't get talked about enough. No, no. That international threepeat, it's never, ever, ever been done in the history of international football to win three major international and tournaments in a row, I and it probably won't be ever not. again. Yeah. I mean, Germany got incredibly close in 1976 when they lost on penalties, but um, 
I, yeah, I, I don't think I ever see it happening again. It's too competitive at the top. I mean, it's yeah, just, there's too many teams exactly. that can do it. So to have one team that could dominate like that for that many years. The sport's too chancy, too, and, and Spain made it yeah. not chancy. They yes. were like, we're going to win. You Full know? control. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I'll amazing. talk about that in the, when I talk about the finals. So uh, thanks for joining us, and I'm sure you'll yeah. be back, obviously, on this podcast. We're going to start – when we start doing basketball games and some other stuff, like, yeah, you will definitely be a frequent guest of this. So um, so get to know this. This is Austin again. Um, thanks for joining us, and yeah, be back. We'll talk about the final here in a second. Peace. Well, that was fun. Um, definitely be looking for more guests on this podcast as we move forward. I kind of hinted there in that segment, uh, talking about when we start talking about other sports, there will definitely be more guests. I have a lot of friends that are really into you know basketball, football, baseball, different things like that. So as we move forward in this podcast and we kind of change it up a little bit and add different sports to this, we will have more guests. And Austin will probably be the most frequent, just given we have you know kind of similar sensibilities and we've watched a lot of this stuff together sometimes, and um, or you know this stuff happens and then we immediately call each other and talk about it. So. He will be on this podcast quite a bit talking about matches in the future. Um, but the thing I want to focus on today, obviously, was the final as well. So uh, the final is the only full match I watched on this. We had this really cool kind of extended highlight DVD that we have of Euro 2012. And so that's what we were watching to be able to talk about the semi. And plus, I kind of wanted him also to talk more about the experience of watching that in Rome rather than just the match itself. So the 2012 final is the match that we're going to focus on. So come back with me to July 1st, 2012 in Kiev at the Olympic Stadium for the Euro 2012 final between Spain and Italy. Vicente del Bosque was the man in charge for Spain, and his lineup for the final read like this. Iker Casillas in goal, Alvaro Arbaloa, Gerard Piquet, Sergio Ramos, and Jordi Alba at the back. The midfield was Xavi, Sergio Busquets, and Xavi Alonso. The front three were Cesc Fabregas, David Silva, and Andres Iniesta. Really, it was a front six. <laughs> for Italy, Cesare Prandelli was the manager, and his lineup for the final was Gianluigi Buffon in goal, Ignacio Abate, Andrea Barzagli, Leonardo Bonucci, and Giorgio Chiellini at the back. Andrea Pirlo was a holding midfielder. In front of him was Claudio Marchisio, Ricardo Montalivo, and Daniela De Rossi. And up front, it was Mario Balotelli and Antonio Cassano. My DVD of this match is the BBC broadcast with Guy Mowbray and Mark Lawrenson on the call. The buildup began in the tunnel with captains Buffon and Casillas leading their nations out. After two excellent anthems, Pedro Proenza, the Portuguese referee, blew his whistle and the match was off. Spain controlled the opening portions of the match and Ramos had a chance from a free kick and a corner within the first seven minutes. Spain's revolving midfield had Italy chasing shadows early on. Xavi went close in the 10th minute, hitting one just over the bar after some excellent buildup. In the 14th minute, Spain had the breakthrough. The move started after some typically patient passing from Spain. The ball found Iniesta as he threaded a beautiful pass through to Fabregas, who ran beyond Chiellini. Fabregas took a touch inside and then dinked the ball back towards the edge of the six-yard box. David Silva was coming in, and he brilliantly guided his header into the top left corner of Buffon's net. 1-0 Spain, and it was well-deserved. In the 16th minute, Pirlo had a good chance with a free kick, but the wall blocked it out for a corner. Italy were forced to make their first change in the 21st minute as Chiellini had a knee problem. Federico Balzaretti came on for the Juve man, a straight swap. Balzaretti had played right back in the semifinal, but he moved over to his natural left side for this final once he came on. Piquet got the first yellow card of the match for his challenge on Cassano in the 25th minute. Italy had their first big chance of the match as Balzaretti crossed in for Balotelli, but Casillas poked it away at the last moment. A couple of minutes later, Cassano had a shot on goal, but it was saved easily by Casillas. For a good 8-10 to minutes, Italy had a nice run of play and were really piecing something together. Spain were basically in a flexible 4-3-3, while Italy played a more of a 4-1-3-2 with Pirlo sitting deep. In the 41st minute, Spain doubled their lead, though. Casillas played a long ball out to the left. Fabregas knocked it back for Xavi. Once Xavi Xavi received the ball, Jordi Alba went on a jet-heeled run, thanks to uh, Michael Cox for that. Quick word on Michael Cox. So at this time, I was really learning about tactics of the game, and I was trying to read Inverting the Pyramid by Jonathan Wilson, and I was a frequent uh, reader of... Michael Cox's work on zonalmarking.net. He now writes for The Athletic and has written two really, really good books. Um, but he, I remember when I reading uh, reading his um, recap of the final, 
he called Jordi Alba's run jet heels. And that's always stuck in my mind. I just thought that was a really nice turn of phrase. Um, and that's really what it was because Jordi Alba just surges beyond the Italian defense. Chavi finds him with the perfect through ball in his stride. All Alba had to do was take a quick touch and then push it past Buffon 2-0 to Spain. In the 44th minute, Montalivo had a pop from outside the box, but Casillas beat it away. Barzagli was booked for taking down Iniesta, and it may have actually saved a goal because Iniesta was beyond him. The resulting free kick from Xavi eventually found Silva, but his shot was straight at Buffon. The halftime whistle blew, and Spain were in full control of this match. Gary Lineker, Alan Hansen, Gianluca Vialli, and Alan Shearer were in the studio for halftime for the BBC broadcast, and all of them were waxed poetic about that first half from Spain, and rightly so. Prandelli brought on Antonio Di Natale for Cassano at halftime to try to get more in the Italian attack. Spain picked up right where they left off, with Fabregas creating a couple of chances early on. Spain should have had a penalty when, Bu- uh, when Bonucci blocked Ramos's header with his hand, but the referee said no. In the 51st minute, Di Natale had a chance, but he hit a shot straight at Casillas. Thiago Mata came on for Italy, taking the place of Montalivo, Italy's final change. In the 59th minute, Spain made their first change, bringing on Pedro for David Silva, who didn't seem too happy about being subbed off. In the 61st minute, Malta did his hamstring and was subbed out almost as quickly as he came on. And that was pretty much game over. Italy were down to 10 men, having suffered the Malta injury after making their third and final substitution. Spain controlled the rest of the match with their passing game on full display. The Spanish defense probably does not get enough credit for their role in this three-peat, but they really did a fantastic job in this match and the whole tournament. Alba was terrific. Pique and, and Ramos immense and Arbaloa solid. Fernando Torres came on for Fabregas in the 75th minute, which was Spain's second change. Nine minutes later, Torres added Spain's third with a neat finish after an inch-perfect pass, yet another inch-perfect pass, from Xavi. Mata came on for the incredible Iniesta in the 87th minute, and just a minute later, Mata made it 4-0 for Spain, with Torres providing the assist. In stoppage time, Spain nearly made it 5-0, but Ramos's back heel didn't have enough power, and Buffon smothered. The final whistle blew after three minutes of stoppage time, and the three-peat was complete. In the final portion of these podcasts, I like to kind of go over the team of the tournament, golden boot winners, and things like that, and then talk about five different categories that I like to kind of wrap up and round up the tournament with. So let's go ahead and get to those. The team of the tournament, which again, Euro 2012, they did a squad of the tournament, like, um, just like Euro 2008 and 2004. So uh, bear with me as I read out the squad of the tournament for this one. The goalkeepers were Manuel Neuer, Gigi Buffon, and Iker Casillas. Do I even need to say the nations for those three? Those are absolute legends. Uh, the defenders, Philip Lam of Germany, Fabio Coentrao and Pepe of Portugal, Jordi Alba, Gerard Piquet, and Sergio Ramos of Spain. The midfielders were Steven Gerrard of England, Sami Khedira and Mesut Ozil of Germany, Daniele De Rossi and Andrea Pirlo of Italy, Xavi Alonso, Sergio Busquets, Andres Iniesta, and Xavi of Spain. And then the forwards were Mario Balotelli of Italy, Cristiano Ronaldo of Portugal, Cesc Fabregas and David Silva of Spain, and Zlatan Ibrahimovic of Sweden. That is a ridiculous 23-man squad. Um, what a team that would be. That would be a really fun FIFA team, actually, the more I look at it. Um, so much do that on Ultimate Team. I mean, all of these squads are good. I mean, all the time, anytime they're making a team of the tournament, it's naturally going to be a very good team. But this one in particular just really stands out as we have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten Spanish players in the squad of the tournament and well-deserved for sure. The Golden Boot winner, that's a little bit tricky for this one. There was actually, I think, six, you know, look at six different players that scored three goals in this tournament, and those six players were uh, three Marios, actually. Mario Mandzukic, Mario Gomez, and Mario Balotelli, Cristiano Ronaldo, Alan Zagoev, and Fernando Torres. Fernando Torres was given the... Uh, golden boot because he had one assist as well so did mario gomez but fernando torres actually played less minutes than gomez so he was actually given the golden boot which is a pretty cool way to cap off a tournament for him that was a little bit hit and miss obviously david Villa was out injured 
And uh, he got to start some games, didn't start some. Um, he came on the final, scored a goal, got an assist, and that's what won him the golden boot. So pretty cool for him. But yeah, this is this is obviously this is the lowest amount of goals for anybody in these. Uh, well, especially in the, the 16 team and, and more uh, tournaments, only three goals as the golden boot winner. That's obviously a pretty low amount, which is why there's so many guys that were tied for that. The golden boot winner for the qualifying portion of the tournament was Klaus-Jan Huntelaar of the Netherlands with 12. So a pretty nice little tally for him. Uh, goal of the tournament. This is one of the things I've been nominating for each of these podcasts so far. And I would say uh, Mario Balotelli's second goal against Germany in the semifinal. I think uh, part of it because of the stakes, part of it because of who it was, the drama of it, um, the long ball from Montalivo, and then the touch and then absolute blast past Manuel Neuer where he had you know just no chance at that. Uh, and then ripping off the shirt, flexing, all that stuff. You know what he means as an Italian, as a black Italian. I thought that was just really cool. I thought that's that's one of those that, those moments that kind of stick out in my mind, um, both as a iconic moment just in terms of the symbolism of it, but also it was actually just a really nice goal. So I would give that one the goal of the tournament. So our last five topics here before we sign off on this penultimate episode of this uh, podcast series, one big takeaway. And I think what I've learned about the five uh, tournaments that have 16 nations in it, which would be obviously 12, 08, 04, 2096, is that 16 is probably the perfect number of participants for this competition. It has the right balance of competitiveness, a couple little surprises, but also usually the very best teams are there. I mean, it's, it's enough qualifying spots where unless you have just a terrible qualifying campaign, the, the 16 best teams, it's maybe not the exact 16 best teams, but the four or five best teams are usually always there. Very few times is someone who could legitimately win the tournament, not make it through qualifying. And honestly, if they can't make it through qualifying, then they probably are not going to legitimately win the tournament. So uh, they probably shouldn't be there in the first place. It, you know, obviously it bumps up to 24, as you guys will learn in, you know, 2016 and, and, and in this tournament, this, this upcoming summer, and that's, you know, I understand why they did that because there's so many more nations now in Europe and it's just, it's more money. It's more matches. It's more opportunities for some of these countries who would never get to qualify if there's only 16 teams now get a chance to qualify. So, you know, I'm looking at you, Finland um, and North Macedonia, but I, I like that part. I like that part of it. It does, it does water down the competitiveness a little bit. It makes um, there be a couple more a lopsided results, if that makes sense. Whereas I think in a 16 team tournament, it's like every team really has a right to be there and is, you know, has multiple players playing in like, you know, the later stage of the Champions League and things like that. So I, I think 16 is just kind of the perfect number of teams for a tournament like this when there's when there's enough competitive teams in Europe. Like, I don't know if that would make sense for, you know, I, I'm obviously CONCACAF, you know, there's not 16 good nations in CONCACAF yet, you know, at a Gold Cup, that's usually that's usually about 12 or 16 teams that compete in those tournaments. And there's a real you know, dearth of quality in those, but that's not the case for UEFA. I mean, there's so many good countries. I mean, so many of those, te those teams are really, really good year in and year out. So it makes sense to have 16. So I think that's one thing I've learned is, is following these tournaments is that that really is the perfect amount of time. It's also a three week tournament. That's the right amount of time too. It doesn't stretch too long. It's not too quick. Um, obviously when you have 24 and 32 and things like that, the tournament stretches to about a month long, which, you know, as, a, as an obsessed football fan for me, that's fine. The more, the, more the merrier. But for the kind of neutral or the person who's just kind of checking in for just like, you know, to kind of get caught up in the hype of a, of a summer tournament, three weeks is probably the perfect amount. So that's kind of the big takeaway I have from this one, as obviously this is the last 16 team tournament. The best shirt of the tournament. Again, I'm obsessed with football shirts, so I will always nominate a best shirt of the tournament. Uh, shout out to Russia's home shirt with the sash, Portugal's away shirt with the cross and the classic checkerboard look from Croatia. But my two favorites were Italy's home, uh, just a really classic royal blue with a nice collar. Um, and I also loved the home shirt that Adidas made for the co-host Ukraine. I love it so much that I actually have one with the Euro 2012 patches on it and the Andrea Shevchenko uh, name on the back, print on the back. Um, I also own the baby blue Spain away shirt that they only wore for one match in the tournament, but I put David Silva on the back and that one is really clean too. So those are some of my favorites. I do, I would like to get an Italy one at some point, um, that Royal Blue, and I, pr I probably will put Balotelli on the back. I always try to get a print for all of these shirts that I own. 
And that's what I would go with for that one. My favorite player to watch from the match that I focused on, um, Travis and Iniesta are the obvious candidates and we're both superb, but I'll give it to Cesc Fabregas. His versatility is a huge reason why Spain were able to play that the way that they did. Um, Cesc could play anywhere in the midfield or up front, and his passing was excellent. He only lasted 75 minutes in the final, but still, he was tremendous. One random observation from the broadcast. Uh, Mark Lawrenson was the co-commentator, and uh, he was in full old guy mode during this match. Uh, he bemoaned the lack of a striker for Spain and got upset when someone sold a foul. Classic old guy stuff. I do like him a lot, but he was definitely past his prime for this match. Uh, guy Mowbray, on the other hand, did a really, really good job. Um, and obviously the guys in the studio, I've always, I've sung the praises of Gary Lineker before, so obviously I thought he did a really good job at halftime. Okay, last topic here before we sign off. Did the right team win? And while not as dominant as the 08 version, I do think Spain was the best team at this tournament, and they capped off their historic international three-peat uh, with a really impressive 4-0 win in the final. I think it's a perfect exclamation point for that run that they had. And I actually think this this accomplishment is weirdly underrated now. I mean, it's never been done in the history of international football, as I talked about with Austin uh, before, since. I mean, it, and it probably won't happen again. I mean, I mean, it would require maybe this France team is the only one that can get close, um, but they would need to win two more tournaments on the spin, obviously, because they lose the final in 2016. I just think this I, we may never see this again. And, and the way they do it, too, they did not give up a goal at any point in the knockout stages of Euro 2008 of World Cup 2010 or Euro 2012. So defensively, they're absolutely phenomenal. And this is where they got a little bit of a boring tag. I remember this was a a big part of the dialogue around Spain during Euro 2012. Some people just get sick of success. And so that's why that comes from that. But they they do play a style that not everybody loves. It is kind of more of like a patient kind of, you know, waiting man's game where it's just pass, 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 pass teams to death and then find the opening. It's not as like up and down, blood and thunder, like the counterattacking Bundesliga or some of the Premier League matches that people watch at the weekend, it is not as intense as that. It's not like constant chances um, as, as some people might like. And so, you know, a lot of the English media and a lot of media from other parts of, of, of Europe and even the world were saying, hey, this team is boring. You know, they're just passing to death. They're using that as a way of defense. And, and they are. They are. I mean, they're using that m- more to me. It's not as a way to defend, but a way to control the match. It's all about control at the very highest levels of the game. And really, really in any sport, but especially in soccer, because the scoring is so low, right? So you're trying to control as much of the match and, and you create the best chances instead of the other team. And so the Spanish way to do that was just to pass, 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 pass teams to death. And they have the players to be able to do that. They don't have you know incredible speedsters on the wings or these huge guys that play at the back or in the you know the base of the midfield that they can kind of lump balls up to or you know big target man strikers. I mean, this is what they have at their disposal. And so they're going to use that to the best of their ability. And at times they play some absolutely beautiful football. And especially in this final, I think they do. And I think it's good that they, that people get to remember them for this performance in the final. And that, like I said, is a good capper to this three P. I think if they'd had a really kind of like stodgy win or, you know, it's nil nil and goes to penalties, people would be like, yeah, they won, but that was kind of boring. So I'm really glad they had this kind of emphatic performance to show like, yeah, no, this, this is like, this is perhaps the greatest team international team of all time, you know, bar none. So, um, I mean, they invoke the names of, of you know, the, the 70s Germany teams or um, 1970 Brazil. I mean, the, the very, very top levels of the game. I mean, people, you know, they, they at worst, they're in the top five of uh, of all time in terms of international teams. So I think that's actually a little bit um, has actually become a little bit underrated. It's only, you know, it was only nine years ago that they capped this off. So I, I just I, I think I want to give them a shout out because that's this is a team that was coming into its own as eyes really falling for the game. And they immediately run off this three-peat. And I probably didn't even realize how big of an accomplishment it was. But with some hindsight now and nine years between Euro 2012 and Euro 2020 slash 21, I think it's pretty easy to say, hey, that was a pretty historic thing. And that should be recognized as such. Uh, Their defense, their goalkeeper, 
Their midfield was absolutely unbelievable. I mean, Xavi and Iniesta might be the best midfield combo in the history of the game. Uh, and then their front their front line, I mean, David Villa at multiple times, Fernando Torres, I mean, different guys chipped in, um, but they have world-class players in the front three as well. So uh, yeah, I just, I want to give them a special shout out as we kind of wrap up this 2012 podcast for just the unique accomplishment that they achieved during Euro 2012. So that'll do it for this tournament. Um, we have one more of these, Euro 2016, as it moves to 24 teams. We will kind of talk about that tournament in depth. And I have not decided that, that I think, Euro 2016 has the worst or second worst champion of any of these tournaments that I've uh, gone back and covered so far. I mean, it's just not a very vintage team, that that Portugal team. And we'll talk about that as we get into this next episode. But that'll be the last one. And then there will be a preview of Euro 2020 and a bit of a wrap up for this series. And I might talk about um, which which team of the tournament of all of the tournaments that I've covered so far would I take in a fictional team of the tournament tournament, if that makes sense. Join us next time for that episode where we talk about Euro 2016. Thank you for listening and thank you for enjoying this project so far and hope you guys are enjoying it as much as I am. Again, thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.